due to work and holiday commitments, this episode was recorded on the 12th of July. Hello and welcome to The Ballot Podcast. I'm Lewis McParlin and I'm joined here today by Andrew Reynolds. Hello. And in this second episode, we're going to be talking about NATO. Last week, we obviously went through the ins and outs of Brexit, a complex episode, but I feel like we covered many of the bases. NATO is a whole other international body, uh, which seems to rear its head every time something militaristic happens. So obviously, in the last few years, we've had a lot happening with Crimea and Russia, North Korea also. Although these are not specifically members of NATO, NATO always seems to find itself in the conversation. So we will give a little bit of a grounding of what NATO is, what it stands for, and then go into a meeting that was held last week uh, between many of the world leaders and Jen Stoltenberg amongst his secretaries, essentially the big wigs of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. So, Andrew, what is NATO and what is its general purpose? So, NATO, first and foremost, is a military alliance of nations. It was founded in post-World War II, 1949, between the United States and numerous um, post-war countries, namely the UK, France, West Germany at that time, and some other states here and there. Over time, it has evolved. Uh, after the Korean War specifically consolidated, it became more of a formalised military structure. Its primary purpose was collective defence. So if a nation was ever attacked, let's say in modern times, if Russia was to invade Estonia, the rest of the nations would decla- in NATO would declare war on Russia alongside it. This offers a sense of security. Specifically during the Cold War, offered a lot of security for these nations. Countries like West Germany and France relied upon the support of the United States, and to have that in writing was really comforting. Despite this, during the entire period of the Cold War, NATO never really had any active missions. It mostly took a back seat and allowed proxy battles, let's say in Vietnam or Korea, to be mainly orchestrated by the United States and its sort of coalitions. So, a proxy war is what we would see in modern day, like Syria, where different sides, well, like the United States, Russia, they'll back different sides in the conflict and flood arms and, and expertise and training into that. But there won't actually be American soldiers on the ground fighting for them. NATO originally was, and to this day, still its primary purpose is to unify the armed forces in defense of a nation within NATO, not really to go out and help in some sort of proxy battle or to invade in the past. Um, the only time it ever has actually been used, this sort of principle of collective defense, Article 5, was after the 9-11 terrorist attacks in which it assisted in the invasion of Afghanistan and then administered some regions of southern Afghanistan. It's also done some other areas, done some um, missions and operations throughout Europe in the breakup of Yugoslavia, enforcing no-fly zones and engaging in airstrikes in response to the Srebrenica massacre, for example. And there's quite a varying level of countries in it. For instance, you do have world powers like US and and stronger countries like the UK in it and France, but you also have slightly weaker countries like Estonia and Latvia, of course, are basically on the border of Russia. How does it benefit these different countries? So, for example, part of NATO's structure is it requires every single member to commit to spending a certain amount of their GDP on military, and that in is it's not legally binding as such, but it's encouraged. So it's two percent of their GDP, and that's to ensure that each the combined forces of NATO are strong enough to fight against any external threat. 
Now, looking at this, we see something like a country like Estonia and Latvia, they've they spent a lot of their money on defence, and that's because they feel a threat by Russia, especially with Russia's actions in, in Ukraine to exert its, its sphere of influence. Now, for Estonia and Latvia, the continued existence of NATO is incredibly important to them, because without NATO, they might feel more vulnerable to the fate of something like Ukraine, where a part of their territory could be annexed, or the whole of their territory, because bearing in mind, Estonia only gained independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. If we compare this to something like Spain, Spain might not feel the threat of the Soviet Union. So for them, they might not spend as much on their military and might not be as eager to commit as much money to it. In recent times, the US has viewed it as very different. Previously, they viewed it as a way to expand their influence and consolidate democracy and get countries involved, like Poland post-Soviet Union. But more recently, under Donald Trump, they've seen it as a burden and they've wanted other countries to take their share because under Donald Trump, anyway, he hasn't seen as much of a threat from Russia when in reality to many countries in Europe there has been. Of all the members of NATO, only five countries currently meet that 2% target. These are USA, the UK, you would imagine, Greece, but also Latvia and Estonia that we mentioned earlier. So Latvia and Estonia, like you said, are right on the border of Russia, so it would make a lot of sense for them to have a superpower backing like the US. Yes. Is the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation specifically military? In its nature, yes. It's classified as a military alliance with principles of collective defence. It has in the past, as we mentioned, like gone out and helped coordinate certain certain, um, attacks by its members or invasions of Afghanistan or Iraq, let's say, in response to the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. The response was partially coordinated or helped by NATO. And let's look at more recently in Libya. After the civil war in Libya, NATO helped enforce an off-fly zone and did actually take out some bombing runs on Colonel Gaddafi's soldiers and the forces in Libya. Now, this is all tied to the military defence and sort of stability of Europe and the world as they see it. So there's not really many ways in which NATO um, is present other than military. If you live in Estonia, for example, American troops led by NATO um, personnel may go into Estonia and do military training conduct military simulations, and help to reassure the native populace that they're being defended. So this is where it was different from another international body, such as the EU or the UN? Yes, precisely. So what has the timeline for NATO been? How has its ideals and goals changed from its formation in 1949 up to present day, and what's its plan for the future, or what do you see being many of the talking points for it in the future? So... As I said earlier, initially it was a sort of very loose collective sign-up uh, up until the Korean War from 1949 to it. There wasn't any military hierarchy, it was just we will defend one another. After that, there was a US Supreme Allied Commander set up, and there's a very clear structure with the NATO post, post-Korean War. From that up until the end of the uh, Cold War, we see NATO performing a very much of a consolidating role in Europe, and the rest of the world, helping to ensure the militaries of Europe are ready in case of a possible Soviet invasion. This led to anxiety amongst the Soviet Union because they set up a response to the Warsaw Pact, which was a very similar thing with the Soviet Union and Soviet-controlled Poland and such like. But then post-Soviet Union, post-1991, we've seen NATO take a far more aggressive role, or more courageous role in some ways. They've gone forth in the breakup of the Yugoslavia, and in Kuwait, Afghanistan, etc. But postmodern day, it's uncertain what role they'll play. 
because we're seeing now more and more often active conflicts that between states that originally led to the formation of NATO, the fear that somehow the Soviet Union would evade Europe and declare war on West Germany, that no longer seems like an active threat. The threat more seems to be between proxy wars, Russia funding a rebel group or creating a rebel group to break away part of a country, or potentially Russia attacking the West through cyber attacks and other such methods. It doesn't seem as likely we'll see a strong military response, although it can still remain relevant. The ideas of the role of NATO obviously vary from state to state, and the importance of this vary from east to west, Estonia to Spain. So now that we have a bit of a grounded knowledge on NATO, what it stands for and its members, now we're going to talk about last week's meeting between many of the world's most powerful leaders, as well as Jens Stoltenberg, the Chief Secretary of NATO. So what was discussed and what were some of the talking points regarding the leaders? So President Trump went to this meeting wanting an increase in military spending from the European members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as well as some other non-European ones like Canada. Now, in the past, most US presidents have felt that the US contributes more than any other other country and they have and that other countries in the European sphere haven't actually put in their fair share which could be fair to say because many other countries have made no effort to increase their military budgets or spending spending as per GDP. President Trump also went in and rallied against many European countries criticizing Angela Merkel for supposedly being too reliant on Russian energy and other such things. We have to ask questions as to whether or not there'll be any change in the future as to GDP spending. At this recent um, meeting, most of the members of NATO all made the commitment just to stand by the 2014 agreement, which was just to continue spending 2% of their GDP, not the 4% of their GDP as President Trump floated for a while, which was heavily condemned by Emmanuel Macron, the President of France, and others as being a little excessive, given the fact that the United States barely even reaches 4% itself, despite its colossal military spending. And Trump has threatened to leave NATO in the past, so how much weight is behind these claims, and what would it mean for NATO if a massive power like the USA were to pull out? Now, under a more protectionist America led by Donald Trump, we've seen this withdrawal from international organisations like the Paris Agreement, and these new threats to somehow leave NATO seem a little bit extreme. In comparison to anything any previous US president has said, especially since most US presidents have viewed NATO in an incredibly positive light. This shocked many European powers. It seems unlikely he'd ever leave it. He said himself that it would be unnecessary at this time, although that seems like a veiled threat. If, for whatever reason, he did decide to carry forward this and actually leave for whatever reason, and carry out his own defence, as France did for a while for 30 years, it would have a tremendous effect, both upon NATO's enemies, in the form of Russia and other such powers, and upon their allies in Europe. First of all, we'd see some countries bordering Russia and countries which didn't feel safe without Russia feeling a lot more vulnerable. They suddenly wouldn't have the backing of, one of, the, world, of the world's strongest military power. And NATO's enemies in far of Russia would see a bit more of a free license to do what they want in non-NATO countries like Ukraine. Because what we're, they would then show is that the US is suddenly taking a step back, not a step forward. And NATO might be doing the same as they would have to reduce massively the amount of resources they spend on protecting countries in the East, because they wouldn't have the backing of US personnel or funds in the slightest. And to finish off this episode, what is the UK's attitude to NATO, and what has their history been? 
Well, given the whole special relationship that many Prime Ministers like to emphasise with regards to the UK's relationship to the United States, most UK Prime Ministers have made a strong commitment to NATO, talking about the achievements of British personnel either in the commanding hierarchy of NATO or working within NATO itself as soldiers. There's never really been any um, Prime Minister who's been against NATO. Our, our current one, Theresa May, hasn't had a great deal of chance to have much of a say with regards to NATO, given the fact that she's been far too busy with Brexit negotiations and other things in her, her domestic sphere. In the future, though, we it's uncertain as to what relationship Prime Ministers will have with NATO. Leader of the opposition at the moment, Jeremy Corbyn, has in the past said that he'd be uncertain as to whether or not he'd immediately respond with war against Russia if Russia were to declare war on any state in Eastern Europe, part of which, which was part of NATO. He said he preferred diplomatic roles, which is entirely against NATO's de- principles of collective defence. And that wraps up the second episode of the Ballot Podcast. In this episode, we talked about NATO and what's its goals and how does it benefit other countries, as well as the discussions last week between world powers in Brussels. You should be able to go away with a little bit of a better knowledge around NATO and why it can sometimes be a bit controversial, especially in the eyes of Russia and the USA. I've been Lois McParlane. I've been joined by Andrew Reynolds. You can find us on Twitter at The Ballot Podcast, and we'll see you next week on the next episode of The Ballot.